Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, a look at the Federal Reserve's annual meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we're looking ahead to the latest house price data in the UK as the sector braces for further price falls as interest rates move higher. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look inside the black box that is China. I'm Kaylee Lyons in Washington, where we have our eyes on Milwaukee ahead of the first Republican presidential primary debate. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with what to expect at the Kansas City Fed's annual Jackson Hole Economic Policy Symposium, a three-day event that officially starts this coming Thursday with a highly anticipated address from Fed Chair Jerome Powell Friday morning about 10 a.m. Wall Street time. Bloomberg Surveillance co-host Lisa Abramowitz, who will be in Jackson Hole this week, joins us now with some insight. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Tom, thank you so much for having me. Well, the theme of this year's symposium is structural shifts in the global economy, but for most of us, it's all about what Jay Powell will say in those remarks and any hints he may offer about what the Fed is thinking going into the September FOMC meeting, now just a few weeks away. So what do you think we can expect to hear from Chairman Powell, Lisa. Well, I think the whole idea of structural shifts raises a question about whether Jay Powell is willing to come out and say inflation is structurally going to be higher in the years to come and whether the rate that the Fed sets has to also be higher in the years to come. And if he says that, what that does to sort of underpin some of the moves we've seen in the bond market, in other words, bond selling off, yields going up, in response to this expectation of higher rates for long. Well, it was a year ago at Jackson Hole that Jay Powell warned of the pain that rising interest rates would cause the economy and consumers. Now, there's been some pain, benchmark lending rates at a 20-year high, but we've seen surprisingly strong job growth since then. We've seen a resilient economy, steady, consistent growth, consumer spending, housing market a little uneven. But is it better than when he projected just a year ago? So when he was talking about pain, he was talking about the unemployment rate coming up. There was a belief that there was no way to get inflation lower unless you had unemployment tick up, people lose their jobs. And this was the pain that they talked about that was necessary to avoid further pain down the line in terms of higher inflation, sort of taxing the profits, taxing the incomes of the average American. We are still at about 3.5% unemployment rate about a year later. In the employment market, that pain is not apparent. 
Nobody would say that this is a difficult labor market, quite the opposite. And there are indications that while it is loosening a touch, it still is relatively easy to get a job and wage increases are still above what they had been pre-pandemic. So as we look to this speech, there is a real question about whether Jerome Powell will come out and say, we were wrong We didn't need the pain. And actually, inflation is coming down just fine because post-pandemic, there were normalization effects that had not yet taken hold. And whether he's going to come out and say, we believe in a soft landing and we are going to be patient and hold rates where they are for longer to gauge whether or not we are correct. If we're wrong, we can raise rates further. But otherwise, let's lean into this. That's kind of what we've heard from other Fed officials as they've talked. Let's lean in a little bit to this idea that maybe we're getting, you know, this mythical beast that is the soft landing or the no landing and inflation coming in. You know, this will be something that I hope he does address because it was a pretty dark speech last year. Yeah, the markets took a tumble, right? Correct. It was sending a very clear message. The Fed came through on what they were saying. They raised rates at the fastest pace in modern economic history. So at what point do they have to revamp their idea of what restrictive means, of how high rates have to go to bring inflation back down to 2%, or are they going to say, we don't need to get it down to 2% so quickly, which is so some of them are hinting. And, you know, if that's the case, we can be patient and we can watch and we can maybe avoid that pain. Well, in that year, CPI went from about 9% in July of 2022 to last month's reading of 3.2%. So whatever they're doing seems to be working. Some people would argue that the decline in inflation, which just means prices are rising at a slower clip, is just simply because year-over-year comparison numbers are too difficult to really achieve that sort of equal 9% level, right? That, In other words, inflation rose at a tremendous pace mid-year last year, very difficult year-over-year to supersede that at such a great clip. Some people are saying that that is fading and that you're going to see a reacceleration in inflation, Neil Dutta among those. Other people saying that this isn't yet even Fed policy have taking effect. This is just simply a normalization. A lot of questions that they, you know, would be interesting for them to weigh in on. Now, the Fed meets again in September. And before then, we're going to get some big data points. We have jobs data, housing data. So what will you be looking for? So you're asking probably... I don't want to say the wrong person, but I will give you the traditional answer and then I will give you my answer. The traditional answer is CPI is really important to see how much inflation is coming in. And of course, the the jobs number is also really important to get a sense of, you know, just how much the economy is cooling or how much the labor market is showing signs of loosening. I would argue part of the problem with this whole concept of data dependency is that which data are you looking at and what narrative are you trying to paint? Are you looking at leading in economic indicators? Are you looking at data over a couple of months? How many months? What's enough to give you conviction that you've actually killed the inflation beast, right? And the reason why I ask this is because this is supposedly a newly data-dependent Fed. What do they do if inflation gets back down to 3% on a rolling three-month basis? Do they say victory? Do they say we have enough data to have conviction that it's going down to 2%? Or do they say, wait a second, we're also looking at the data that's over there with 
what cars cost. And oh, yeah, over here with how people are feeling in the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey, it is a moving target to get a sense of what the economic model is at a time of incredible change. And that, I think, is what people are trying to understand. What data are they looking at? What's their framework for making these assessments at a time where that itself is of great debate? Now, some of that data, particularly housing, which We all look at closely. It's tough. Affordability at a 40-year low because interest rates are at a 22-year high and the prices just unbelievable. That's got to impact everything. Yes. And it's surprising that given affordability is so low, housing prices haven't come down more. And this goes to the heart of the conundrum for the Federal Reserve. Three years ago, if you would have pulled anybody off the street and said, hey, the Fed's going to go from 0% to 5% in terms of the overnight rate, mortgage rates are going to be north of 7%, where do you think housing prices are going to be? Everyone would say, oh my goodness, they would absolutely tank. There's no way they can continue to chug higher. And yet here we are. And part of it is that because of the higher rates, people aren't selling and there's no supply. I mean, this is one of the most counterintuitive economies in the way that it is sort of developed that a lot of people have seen, and it keeps upending economists' projections. So housing will be interesting. The tea leaves that it's sending, though, again, as much mystery as they are anything else because of the ways people adapt to uh, higher rates and finding workarounds. So tell me, while we wait to see which J-PAL we're going to get, dovish or hawkish, what's it like at Jackson Hole? What's it like being there? Um, Well, truth be told, we're up at, you know, 4 a.m. local time or 3 a.m. local time. So it's usually pretty dark and cold and it's very cold, uh, you know, up in the mountains. But it's gorgeous as the sun comes up over uh, all of the mountains. And then there are those on the Fed and the academics who join who go hiking and canoeing and fishing. And there are those who stay in the lodge and have discussions. It's really neat to have so many thinkers together trying to hash things out to understand where we are. And it's a it's a retreat in the traditional American kind of sense. Do you think that kind of atmosphere loosens these people up the way we normally see them is so stern, so buttoned up? Is it a little different in Wyoming? Yes and no. They are stayed because they have a tall task. They have a difficult one and they have a big job to do. And I feel that, you know, I feel that energy from them. You know, sure, people a little bit looser, sure. But it isn't party mode. It's not as though people, you know, do junkets where they're throwing axes and getting hammered. It's like, you know, definitely a feeling of gravitas for the moment. And I think that that's, you know, that's what the atmosphere feels like. And and to be fair, I mean, we are fairly isolated about 45 minutes away from the actual town of Jackson Hole. And you're surrounded by little cabins or nothing and mountains. So it's not exactly a party atmosphere conducive to, you know, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, incredible partying. This is, you know, the levity that people have going for a hike or, you know, going fishing. It's more of that nature. Thank you, Lisa. Bloomberg Surveillance co-host Lisa Abramowitz. And we'll have live special coverage from Jackson Hole of all the key events. Plus, we'll bring all the news being made on the sidelines to you as well right here on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, is the real estate market in the U.K. in trouble? I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, troubles mount for the Chinese economy as the slowdown deepens. We'll bring you details. But first... Britain's real estate market will be in focus in the coming days. Home prices under pressure from higher rates and Bloomberg Economics is forecasting further declines as the effects of the most recent hikes feed slowly into the market. Any hopes of a pause from the Bank of England have been dashed by recent hotter inflation and wage growth data. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, like the weather, house prices are a topic of national conversation in Britain. After more than a decade of steady growth, prices are starting to come down, falling around 5% from their peak last August. Bloomberg Economics reckons they have another 5% or so to fall, and we'll get fresh data from the property website Rightmove in the coming days. The Bank of England's 14 consecutive interest rate hikes are still feeding into the market because of the way that UK mortgage rates are usually fixed for just two to five years. The recent stronger-than-expected wage growth and inflation data means markets now expect BOE rates to peak around 6%, so there's still plenty of pain ahead for the housing market. We've been discussing this with Damien Shepherd, our residential real estate reporter, and John Stepek, who writes Bloomberg's Money Distilled newsletter. Well, the market expectation now is that rates will peak around about 6% in March. Um, And obviously, I mean, market expectations have changed an awful lot this year and bounced up and down. The more important, I'd say, the BOE rate is an important factor in mortgages, but it's not the kind of most important and it's not, you know, the key. A lot of it depends on how keen banks are to lend as well so on the one hand rates have gone up a lot on the other hand banks are quite keen to write loans because they're not doing a lot of business so the business they they can do you know they they want to do it um 
but you know, at the end of the day, the, the kind of base rate is the base rate. So you're talking about interest rates have gone from about, say, 2% in the mortgage about, you know, 18 months ago. And now you're going to be paying upwards of 5.5%. I think the two-year average fix is about 58 at the moment. So it's gone up an awful lot. And the thing is, I don't think that we've seen that feed through all the way to prices yet. I want to ask your advice on whether you lock in a two-year or go for a five-year, but we'll leave that for maybe the end of the conversation. <laughs> Let's bring in Damien at this point. Damien, when it comes to volumes, because there's been some res- some element of resilience in-, in terms of the housing market, uh, what- what's-, what's happening with, with-, with volumes, give- given this higher rates environment? Yeah, so I think, you know, the doomsday predictions of big house price falls, I think it's playing out relatively slowly. But in in transactions, you're seeing them a lot lower than they were this time last year. Uh, One of John's recent newsletters pointed me to the RICS uh, survey, where you see the view of estate agents and surveyors, and and they're pretty downbeat. It's pretty brutal for real estate It's pretty brutal, and um, that normally points to a dip in transactions because they're not getting their commission. Um, So I think transactions are down, and what's interesting is that's even happening at the top end of the market. in prime London, we're down about 25% transaction-wise in July compared to the same month a year ago. Um, and when you see that sort of distress happening at the top end of the market, it makes you think what's happening a bit lower down. John, Bloomberg Economics expected a peak-to-trough move of 10% in house prices. I mean, how far does it look like we're into that? And should people be holding on for this hope that prices are going to drop much further? Well, I mean, okay, well, so far we're down 4% according to Nationwide from August 2022. Um, the first thing I would say there is, look, if you're buying a house, forget about trying to time the market because it really is a waste of your energy. Um, there are so many other factors that matter for buying a house and it's mostly your personal circumstances. I mean, if you're an investor, that's a slightly different issue. Um, but you know you need somewhere to live and if you've decided this is right for you the thing you focus on is making sure you've got somewhere that A, you can afford if things go a bit pear-shaped with the interest rates um, and B, that you are happy to live in for a prolonged period of time in case you know something happens and you end up stuck there um, you know, so that's, that's basically what you should be thinking about rather than worrying about whether prices are going to go down by another 5% from here or not that said you know I struggle to see how prices won't fall further because, you know, obviously there is that that massive issue, which is the interest rates have gone up so much that people can no longer borrow. I mean, at the end of the day, when interest rates when interest rates go up, buyers cannot uh, borrow as much money, and therefore they cannot afford the prices that sellers wanted a year ago or six months ago so the sellers have to give way or they have to sit in their houses which is as Damien said one reason why transactions have kind of fallen off a cliff because you know there's a stalemate going on Um, but the longer that continues the longer that you know the more I think that would have to resolve in favour of the buyers rather than the sellers because you know if you want to move then at some point you're going to have to accept that well people just don't have the buying power anymore. What is happening, Damien, on, on the mortgage market then? Just flesh that out for us. We saw a lot of big banks pulling deals recently. That, that grabbed a lot of headlines because rates were just going up. Markets were repricing on, on higher rates from the BOE. Has that started to settle a little bit? What are you looking at in terms of kind of two-year, five-year? I mean, John touched on this, but but unpack it a little bit more for us. Yeah, so we've seen some headlines in the last couple of weeks of lenders sort of slowly putting rates down again. And when I say down, we're still essentially touching 15-year highs when it comes to 
the two-year and five-year fixed. Now, there's tens of thousands of remortgages waiting to happen in September. Uh, now, those people have been able to secure those new deals for the last six months, um, but it, it sort of spells a period of pain coming up at the end of the year when people are coming off those fixed deals, which would have been locked in at much lower rates, um, and are now sort of um, looking at uh, mortgage rates of, of up to almost 6% um, in terms of the average. So there's going to be a, a lot of pain to happen towards the end of this year. And despite the fact that lenders are slowly cutting rates, we're still so much higher than we saw during that era of cheap money. Um, so there's a lot of pain to come for these remortgages. And the buy-to-let mortgages are a particular pinch point that we've seen, and that's come out in some of the recent data as well, of how many landlords are being forced to sell up because they can't afford the increase in interest rates as well. What's the impact on the rental market? Well, I mean, renters are at the sharp end of the the problems in the property market at the moment. There's a lot of pressure on landlord finances. A lot of them are on interest-only mortgages, or, or the majority are, um, which means that every time there's a BOE hike, they're going to feel the pain more than those sort of standard mortgage holders who are on fixed deals. Um, and the only option really is to hike renters' uh, monthly bills or sell up. We've seen an uptick in, in landlords selling their properties over the last sort of six months, um, and that's quite probably in response to these high mortgage rates and the fact that you know they see those BOE hikes quite intensely um, when they happen um, but for renters you know they're seeing their monthly bills go up a lot and these are the people that want to get on the housing ladder um, uh, I'm a renter myself and and uh, due for a rent hike at the end of this month so when you start to consider how much that takes the opportunity of getting onto the housing ladder away from you um, it's, it's a pretty stark reality for those renters yeah indeed um John, on buy-to-let, is buy-to-let still a good investment? No, I mean, if you're thinking of starting now, I would say no. Um, I mean, I imagine what's happening, and this is purely conjecture, but imagine what's happening with these buy-to-let landlords who are being forced to sell up, is that one of the problems is that they're not then selling to first-time buyers. They are actually probably selling to other cash-rich, more professional landlords. That was Bloomberg's John Stepek, author of the Money Distilled newsletter, and Damien Shepherd, our residential real estate reporter. Now, one sector of the market we didn't get a chance to discuss with them was luxury homes. Damien's been reporting about the discounts that sellers are having to offer on houses worth millions of pounds as they try to attract buyers. So perhaps an opportunity in London's market for those with a few million to spare. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at what's happening in China's economy. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Troubles mount for the Chinese economy as the slowdown deepens and a crisis brews in the shadow banking industry. How will the government navigate through this post-COVID trough? Well, for more, let's head to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia's host, Brian Curtis. Tom, we look forward to China's loan prime rates out on Monday in the coming week. After cuts in the MLF, we can expect to see an adjustment there, uh, probably in the five-year LPR for sure, which is a proxy for mortgages. By many accounts, China's housing slump is worse than the official data would suggest. New home prices have slipped only 2.4% over the past year or so, but the feedback that we're getting from estate agents and data providers paint a darker picture. And so a lot of focus is on what we might see in terms of stimulus for the broader economy. Joining us now for some discussion about this is Jenny Marsh, Bloomberg's team leader for China Economy and Government. Jenny, so we're talking about some pretty extreme pessimism all of a sudden here in the Chinese economy. Is it warranted? Um, You know, I think the pessimism is warranted. Um, There are some sort of big problems facing the Chinese economy, but I think it's really important to remember the economy still is on track to grow by 5% this year. Um, And I think, you know, there was a state council meeting this week. Um, It was sort of a snap plenary, um, which is sort of surprising and does show some concern. But, you know, uh, Li Chang stressed at that meeting, you know, the economy is in good in good shape to actually meet its growth target this year. So while certainly, you know, um, growth is growth is slowing and uh, there are problems facing the economy, it's not in bad shape. We've talked a lot about how international investors and perhaps even domestic investors uh, are calling for more stimulus. Uh, But we did see in the South China Morning Post, uh, they're running a a piece highlighting a speech that Xi Jinping gave back way back in September, uh, asking for cadres to to be patient, to uh, understand that China just can't simply follow the beaten path and and he's really pushing for 
uh, patience because that's what's needed for a common prosperity to to deliver its um, you know its fruits. You know, with that type of thinking, uh, investors may be waiting for a while here. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think China does have um, the resources to sort of to to simulate the economy if it wants to. But you know, Xi Jinping for years now has been trying to instill this idea of high quality growth. Um, which is sort of shifting away from the properties and economic driver, lowering debt and boosting high tech industries. So I think, you know, for Xi, I think in a way he's sort of prepared to see the, the economy run a bit cooler if it means that actually it sort of gets into better shape. And I think actually people now are sort of accepting that 5% growth target was a serious goal rather than just some kind of floor to be exceeded. We had just in the past few days uh, some Bloomberg data revealing that some 60% of uh, outstanding Chinese offshore real estate bonds are labeled as distressed. Uh, so we need to focus a little bit more on the property market here. Sometimes when you get prices only moving down a small amount, it doesn't tell the real story. The big drop-off in transactions sometimes can tell a bigger story. How deep is the crisis in the property market? You know, I, th I think the thing with the property market is the uh, the debt sort of facing the developers is the big thing now that, you know, China has to really deal with. Um, there are so many people who have sort of put their life savings into homes, which developers haven't yet built. And now uh, with sort of the debt problem ballooning, you know, how these developers are going to sort of find the financing to make good on these properties um, is a real risk. And I think that's something that the government is worried about. And I think, you know, there are, there are many ways in which they're prepared to see things sort of um, go a bit cooler. But, you know, this is something that can sort of spill over into social instability and also then, you know, have this sort of um, ripple effect through the economy, which is kind of what we're seeing this week, um, you know, with the shadow banking crisis now where you know, these trust funds have sort of invested in the property market and this sort of ripples over and then impacts on people's wealth. So I think it is a big concern. Yeah, one wonders uh, whether or not we see more people out in the streets like we did see in the past week in Beijing, uh, whether or not that forces the hand of policymakers. It's the type of thing that was rumored back when um, zero COVID was changed. I mean, exactly. And I think, you know, for Xi, despite the fact he does come from this elite sort of princely background, he sees himself as sort of a champion of the people. And I think those COVID protests were so shocking because he realized that the average person, A, was angry and B, had been hardest hit by his policies. And I think that is worrying for him. And, you know, the one thing that I think the Chinese public is willing to protest about is their wealth. You know, if you make Chinese people poorer, um, they will come out onto the streets. And I think those uh, protests are sort of seen as being somewhat legitimate as well. So it is the kind of thing the government would respond to, for sure. So confidence is needed uh, not only for the business sector, but for the consumer sector. And then we have a story like we ran just at the latter part of this past week where officials have asked investment funds uh, to avoid being net sellers of equities. In other words, to make sure that they're buying a little more than they're selling. What does that do for confidence when stories like that emanate? I think it's not a good look. You know, if the government has to intervene in this kind of way, then the market's not running as it should be. Um, you know, and this is a problem that the government has at the moment. It, it sort of has these mixed signals. On the one hand, they're saying, you know, the growth target is fine. And sort of um, the Communist Party's newspaper earlier this week had an editorial saying, you know, no growth would be a problem. But on the other hand, you know, they, they don't want the confidence to deteriorate in a way that, that it becomes a self-fulfilling loop, you know, and, and then things do go into sort of crisis mode. And I think there were some banks earlier this week that downgraded their um, 
economic growth forecast to below 5%. And I think if it does start to look like the government's going to miss the 5% target, that's also something that could really motivate the government to take sort of uh, bolder steps. And we talked uh, also at times over the past week about um, uh, Chinese officials deciding not to publish the unemployment numbers for youth. And as you pointed out in an interview that we did on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, uh, those numbers from 16 to 24 may be a little misleading uh, because of, of the difficulty in sort of tracking young people. But it's another example of how policy sometimes uh, will get adjusted uh, just to have the appearance of things not being as bad as perhaps they look. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it, exactly. It could be that China has uh, legitimate reasons for wanting to change its methodology in capturing this data because, you know, should it be capturing 16-year-olds in youth unemployment data if realistically they're students, you know, still living at home, etc. But the way they did it, you know, pausing that data <laughs> in a month where it's expected to soar creates a bad impression, particularly when it comes as they've been restricting growing amounts of data. Um, they used to release numbers showing the amount of land developers bought and the price they paid. That's been uh, missing um, for much part of this year. You know, there's countless examples of this where China sort of, when things get a bit too awkward and prickly, they just sort of stop releasing that data. And, you know, it, that creates this sort of fees into fears that China is becoming more of a black box and somewhere which is volatile and hard to invest in. Yeah, and it does raise questions about the overall data. I've been here for more than 30 years, and, you know, we always had these questions about data. But for the most part, we say, well, the data is the data, and this is what we live with. Uh, but now it's it's very much in focus again. Uh, but I, I think we should probably spend a little bit of time on some of the positives in the Chinese economy. Because to be fair, even as you suggested earlier, if we are getting up around 5% growth, some things are working. So let's take a minute here to look at some parts of the Chinese economy that do seem to be producing. Yeah, I mean, and also often when we talk about um, the data, it's sort of like the data is weakening, the growth is slowing. You know, we're not saying that there, it's actually in decline. So, um, you know, obviously CPI did go in decline recently, but there are sort of other bright spots uh, for the economy. So I think it is important to sort of um, to focus on those too. Interesting perspective. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Jenny Marsh, Bloomberg Team Leader for China's Economy and Government. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look ahead to the first 2024 Republican primary debate, which happens on Wednesday. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Wednesday marks the first debate of the 2024 presidential season, and it's a focus on the Republican field. For a preview, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Tom, next week is going to be a big one in the world of politics for many reasons. President Biden visiting Maui on Monday, the first Republican primary debate on Wednesday, and then a Friday deadline for former President Trump and the 18 other co-defendants charged in the Georgia 2020 election case to voluntarily surrender in Fulton County. But really, it's the debate 
That's the big one we have all been waiting for. So we'll focus on that. Bloomberg Washington senior editor Wendy Benjaminson is here with me for more. So, Wendy, the biggest question is going to surround former President Trump. And will he or won't he actually show up? That's exactly right. And it's, Kaylee, it's something that Donald Trump has just perfected in his time in political life, is no matter what else is going on, this tragic fire, the uh, his own criminal indictments, we are all wondering on pins and needles, <laughs> is he going to show up for the debate or isn't he? And it will, I mean, it's important whether or not you like Donald Trump, it's important because the whole debate shape is different. And for the candidates involved, all of their prep will be different. You know, candidates really spend a lot of time preparing for the debate. They do role Mm -hmm. playing and all of that. And if Trump is there, it's one debate. If Trump is not there, it's a totally different debate. Well, and if he's not, who then is the punching bag? That honor goes to Ron DeSantis, (laughs) the governor of Florida, who is second in the polls, even though he is 30 points below Donald Trump at this point. But he's in that number two spot with Vivek Ramaswamy and surprisingly, in some places, Tim Scott nipping at his heels. Well, and we learned this past week that those close to Ron DeSantis are actually advising him during the debate to defend Trump and go after Ramaswamy, who you were just talking about. Defending the person you are running against, defending the front runner. How does that make sense, Wendy? (laughs) Well, I struggle with this. I've been struggling with this one, too, because it just doesn't make any sense in a normal world. But what this DeSantis super PAC or a firm associated with DeSantis's super PAC put online so that it could legally communicate with Ron DeSantis was debate advice that said, Um, Yes, you should defend Donald Trump, but in kind of a backhanded, bless your heart kind of way. Hmm. What they're saying is, well, he's under four indictments. The poor man. He just is so distracted. He couldn't possibly focus on the country's needs. He must take time to focus on himself. You know, hearts and minds go, hearts and prayers go to the Hmm. former president. So I guess that's kind of a left-handed way of defending him. So with Trump as the front runner and all of these candidates, pretty much languishing behind him. Many of the people who are going to be up on that stage are still down in the single digits. Are there any of them where if they can't, you know, make something big happen at this debate, it's kind of game over? It could be game over for some of these guys. There is a, guys, I say, um, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, is still in it. She says to win it, so we will see. But, um, and her performance is very important in this debate. But there's another debate in September, I believe, toward the end of September. Mm -hmm. And there will be even tougher requirements to get on that stage. So unless you have one of those viral moments, what the the DeSantis memo called the, uh, what was it, the falling off the cliff, (laughs) or no, it was the orchestra pit moment, where a candidate who talks about foreign policy for three or four minutes will not be remembered as much as the guy who falls into the orchestra pit. All right. This is going to be a very interesting one. Bloomberg Washington senior editor, Wendy Benjaminson, thank you so much. And Tom, all eyes are going to be on Milwaukee. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning, 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day.
I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 